Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and tax practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm George Husakos, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and yet host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Arthur Thanasiu, tax partner at Thompson Gear. Arthur is an accredited tax law specialist, author, conference presenter, and commentator on tax. We've had Arthur yakking on about tax twice before with us. Our loyal listeners may recall that on episode nine, on November 29th of 2018, Arthur yakked about his experience in handling complex disputes for tax agents and the risks emanating from the ATO's increased focus on tax agents. Arthur also had a yak with us at episode seven on October 29th, 2018, talking about the proposed targeted amendments to Division 7A of the Income Tax Assessment Act of 1936, first mentioned on May 18th, 2012, when the then Assistant Treasurer, Michael Bradbury, commissioned a review of Division 7A. More recently, on the 30th of June 2020, the Assistant Treasurer, Mr Michael Suker, announced a further deferred start date from 1 July 2020 to an income year commencing on or after the date of royal assent of the enabling Division 7A legislation, which I note we're yet to see in draft form. Today, we're going to continue the Div 7A conversation, taking a deep dive into the relief provision of subdivision 109DB, namely sections 109RB and 109RD, and the hardship provision of section 109Q. As more importantly, they become increasingly relevant during our once in a hundred year global pandemic. We'll also discuss some of the common tricks and traps of the Div 7A provisions. So, what we'll talk about things like ineffective loan agreements, statute barred loans, and loans through interposed entities. Arthur, welcome back to Tax Yak. Thanks, George. Great to be back. Thank you for the invitation. Now, Arthur, we saw the Assistant Treasurer's uh, update in regard to the delay of, once again, of Div 7A matters. Do you have a crystal ball with you? And uh, would you care to speculate on when we may see an exposure draft for the targeted Div 7A measures? And what would be some of the issues for, for the current government when proposing the targeted amendments? Okay, George, I've got out the crystal ball. And um, using uh, my, the knocks that I've gained from the School of Hard Knocks, this is what I've got to say. When the Assistant Treasurer uh, provided the media release on the 30th of June of this year, um, it was just a very open-ended statement to suggest that the amendments will commence effectively when they commence. So, to me, I had an immediate sense of relief because my main fear was that we would see a situation where there'd be um, retrospective um, amendments, where there was no possibility of any form of consultation with the profession. Um, and that was on the basis that we did have 
a consultation paper being the targeted amendments to Division 17 integrity rules. But more importantly, we also had some dates. So, so my fear was that we would have some um, um, unilateral amendments that would be retrospective. And that was, I, I think, a real possibility. The good thing about it now is that it's really very much a forward-looking statement. Now, personally, I don't think you can take much away from the announcement other than it effectively represents a permanent deferral of the start date. Um, and more importantly, suggests that there will be a certain date in the future. So um, the good thing about that, again, is because we're not fixing dates, we're not fixing dates, we're simply saying that it will come into operation when Royal Assembly is received, means that you can go through a formal, thorough uh, dissertation, if you like, of the proposals how they're meant to apply. And I would expect in the usual course that it'd probably um, um, be sent to some type of um, expert select committee to review um, any proposed changes, just to make sure that this time, whatever changes do come in, make it for the long term. So if you, if you go back over the history of Division 7A, we had, a, we had, from 1997, we had, I think, a fairly set of standard but rigid rules. And those rules, I think, were, were well understood, but the problem is they were very harsh in their operation. We then had, I think, three sets of rolling amendments over three different periods. And I think the last most um, substantive ones were, for example, the introduction of subdivision EB and so forth. And to me, that's where it sort of came off, off the rails because going from a... Prior to 1997, we had a system where the commissioner had to form an opinion, if you like, on the old section 109. Post Division 7A, the Commission didn't have to form an opinion, it was just simply automatically um, executing. We're now going back to um, where the Commissioner needs to be involved. Now, um, I think that that's a de deliberate design feature. I think the Commissioner now wants to know as much as he can possibly get because I think he's got the relevant data capture systems in order to be able to get the data and use it effectively going forward. So, back to Division 7A, um, I'd suggest that if if we are going to get amendments, most likely about a year or two away, particularly in this post-COVID environment, or when, or when it becomes post-COVID. Um, the cynic in me, however, George, suggests that it might be the case that we might not ever get any amendments. And it'll be like Division 6 with the trust rules. All we got were just some Bamford-type amendments in 2011 or 2012. Um, we were told that there'd be a thorough rewrite of, of the entirety of Division 6 particularly now that the Commission is moving away from the source rule. But I, I think that um, it would be nice to get a set of rules that we can work with that will last the distance and last for a very long period of time. The cynic in me thinks it might never happen, but if it does happen, I actually like to think that we get Division 7A cut off and then we start a brand new set of rules, Division 7B, because if, if you look at the new proposed rules, they do have very different concepts such as distributable surplus and so forth, um, a new set of rules in a, in a slimmer um, set of um, legislative um, uh, rules, I think will benefit everybody. It'll be easy to work with, easy to understand, um, effective, efficient, cost of compliance, all of those things come into it. So I would hate to think that we just get um, a hodgepodge of amendments in Division 7A and it just becomes harder to work with and there's more potential, if you like, for error.
Yeah, look, I'll, I'll vigorously agree with you on that point, Arthur, because when you're taking new starters and people that are new to TATS through to Division 7A and you ask them to have a look at it, they start flicking through page one, page two, page three, and then they get to page 26. So it is uh, what I'd call now a convoluted aspect of the law. And um, maybe potentially we can see some bravery from our friends in Treasury here. Are they prepared just to wipe the slate clean? And as, as, as we've alluded to, just replace Division 7A with uh, a Division 7B. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's so many reasons why that should take place. If you look at Section 109C, which establishes the relevant statutory requirements for what a payment is for the purposes of whether or not a payment might trigger the operation of Division 7A, you also have attached, attached to that uh, 109CA, which talks about the value of um, uh, the use of assets also constituting a deemed dividend. And then you've got to go through the relevant exceptions as well. And it becomes very, very difficult to work with because you just continually have these add-ons and it just makes the whole thing really unsta inherently unstable, for want of a better term, and, and which is why I think we both agree that moving new rules and a new model into a new set of provisions, I think, um, will, will achieve their objective, will be easier to work with, I think, and will last the distance. Thank you for that, Arthur. Look, um, I think the elephant in the room is, um, in terms of the changes, the changes were quite significant uh, that were being proposed. So things like simplified loan rules and bringing the, the pre-97 loans back into the system. Mm. Now, um, it's best these things aren't ignored and really the profession actually prepares for them in terms of a scenario as it comes in. Um, so on those pre-97 loans, do you see an opportunity for the ATO to look at them when they come back into the system and say, look, really there's been no repayments on these loans. Have these debts effectively been forgiven and, and that way present uh, a real tax issue? I would, I would start with that proposition, George, but I'd also go so far as to say the problem is that under the current rules, um, we, we're also building in um, different states' statute limitation issues. And the problem there is that each state has its own operation of the statute of limitations law. And take New South Wales for an example, where a debt uh, that exceeds the limitation period um, that hasn't been refreshed um, automatically um, dissipates, it disappears. Whereas in other states, different time requirements, such as Northern Territory or Victoria, um, a debtor has a defence if it's more than six years and it hasn't been refreshed. So I think if we're going to deal with pre-4 December 97 loans, and I'm, I'm using loans in a very loose term because um, loans really means that um, somebody recording the transaction sought to put the debit in the balance sheet rather than in the PL at the time. Seems to me as though all other things being equal, they're not receivables. If, if they've been in the balance sheet for more than 20 years, you can't say that they're receivable. Um, and, and of course, we're, not, we're excluding any loans that might be freshened up. But as a general proposition, I think there are still many, many private companies out there, and I'm just using the very basic model here of a private company with a debit loan account, that, that does represent an amount that was advanced before 
the operation of Division 7A under the old Section 109. And remember, Section 109 hasn't been repealed. So um, it's still on the books and it's still there if necessary. But, but here's the thing. It's, it's quite likely that if a company decided to um, issue proceedings to try and recover the loan, a 25-year loan, it's quite likely that it might be um, statute barred. Now, that means that if we're going to um, ultimately get the benefit back into the company that was taken out tax-free at some earlier point in time, I think what's got to happen is um, it, there's got to be a statutory response, and that statutory response has to override the statute limitations and ignore it altogether. Um, so I think that right now there's a real hot topic about whether or not you should just simply write off pre-4 December 97 loans. And, if, and if, if you did ask me the question, George, and I presume that you're asking, you're impliedly asking me the question, um, Arthur, if I've got a private company, got a pre-4 December 97 loan, uh, my client desperately wants to write it off before we have to think about um, putting them on 10-year loans because I'm not inclined to pay anything back to the company over 10 years, principal and interest. And I'd say, look, um, I'd, I'd be really, in the absence of obtaining a private binding ruling, I'd be really, really reluctant I'd be exceedingly reluctant as a tax agent to want to accede to my client's instructions or requests to write off the loan. Now, I'll look at it in two ways. Um, actually, I'll look at it in three ways. So the first way, from a Corporations Act point of view, probably not a good idea because you're effectively just dissipating value out of a company. It's no different than taking money out of a company and not repaying it back. And you only need to think about the current problems facing Clive Palmer. And the, and the fraud charges. Now, that's an extreme case, but at the end of the day, under the corporations, you just simply can't take out property willy-nilly. Secondly, um, I think that um, if I was a tax agent and I didn't get advice and I just did what I did and then there was some adverse ramifications from the commissioner, I'd be worried about the tax practitioner's board because I should have obtained advice. Um, but the main thing is that uh, ultimately, there is a real risk that the commissioner will simply treat the writing off um, as um, a form of evasion and under 109F subsection 6, probably say that it was um, forgiven at some earlier point in time and then go back and issue an amended assessment. All I'm saying is there's way too many risks to just simply succumb to the temptation of writing off a debit balance simply because you just want to avoid putting it on a 10-year loan. If, in fact, the new, the new rules do come into effect and if, in fact, it does treat pre-4 uh, pre December 97 loans as necessarily need to go on 10-year loans. Look, thank you for that, Arthur. Um, you've touched on something which, which I'd like to raise um, and I'll bring in the pre-97 loans and I'll relate them to UPEs. Now, UPEs had very little mention in the Treasury consultation paper on Division 7A. Right. It may have been intentional, but in, in this current global pandemic, do, would we like our friends at Treasury just to acknowledge the situation we're in? And if UPEs uh, are going to be paid out or put on compliant loan terms, along with those pre-97 loans, is this the right time because of a pandemic, or should they look at our friends at Treasury look at delaying the matters till we're 
out of this uh, COVID bubble. Mm, yeah, look, that's a really good point, George. Um, so, so here's the thing. Going back to UPEs generally, um, post-UPEs, I don't think, are, are controversial. They're just simply going to fall into the regime of the 10-year simplified loan rules. Um, pre-16 December 2009 UPEs, I think surprisingly, weren't really touched on the consultation paper. They were brought up as a discussion question. And the discussion question was, should UPEs arising prior to 16 December 2009 be brought within Division 7A? Um, so that, that's a bit odd because pre-4 December 97 loans were expressly and explicitly dealt with, but not these pre-UPEs. That's the first thing. My, obviously, I think, it, it, you know, just using logic and symmetry, you'd, you'd suggest that pre-16 December 29 UPEs should be treated in the same way. I think that any, any move um, by um, the government, if you like, to legislate any changes to Division 7A, I think necessarily must happen well after there's a recovery, a sustained recovery, and more importantly, where there is no risk of any um, diminution in that recovery. So there might not be a further pandemic in the next two or three years. So I think there needs to be a clear track record of emerging from this problem. And then once everybody's satisfied that we've got an economy back on track, which is going as the way that it should, which is in a, in a, a, a growth mode, that's when I think these items will come into existence because then um, there will be the means by which people will be able to make the, the, the repayments and the catch-up repayments if they've asked for the commissioner exercise discretion, which we'll talk about later. But the, the main thing is this. This is a very, very um, unique period. Um, people say once in a 100-year event. In, in a matter of months, it's decimated developed Western economies and they were struggling for growth anyway in the last few years. Um, so I think that any change that happens, if indeed it happens, will take place um, in a number of years when things do get back on track. And, and all other things being equal, and this happened also post-GFC, but all other things being equal, I expect that, you know, this time next year we should be back on track and we should all be, you know, rearing and, you know, just ride off 2020 altogether. Excellent. Um, I think we'll leave those changes, those proposed changes there, but it's something we could keep yakking about for hours. Um, now, let's, let's do that deep dive into Section 109RD. Um, we thank the, uh, the, the announcement on the 26th of June where the Commissioner of Taxation announced uh, deferrals for the, mid -year, the minimum yearly referral for due to hardship under Section 109RD for the 19-20 financial year. In terms of its outline, it does provide that temporary relief for, for a year. But Arthur, when, when I look at um, the tests in order to be eligible to fit under this, and the, the ATO gives an example in, in terms of I can sell my blue chip shares, they're liquid, I, I, I wouldn't be part of this measure. Have they set the bar too high in order to access uh, 109RD hardship relief? 
Yeah, so look, I when this first came out, uh, this announcement, George, um, there was clearly a fear that um, many people would be unable to make the minimum yearly repayments. And so um, at first blush, it was a fantastic um, initiative by uh, the tax office, using the Commissioner's own discretion on the 109RD, to allow uh, an extension, um, because, simply because the Commission had the ability um, under Division 7A to, to, to avoid the operation of Division 7A by allowing a deferral effectively. Now, remembering that 109RD talks about the minimum yearly repayment not being made because of circumstances beyond the debtor's control, um, the Commissioner has that general discretion um, and he can take into account a number of matters, but simply um, it's, it's that element, if you like, of, of um, circumstances and deferral. Now, the thing is this, the thing is that if you actually go through the ATO website, because the only way you can do it is you need to make an application at the ATO. If you go to the ATO website and you make that application online, you have to basically demonstrate that, uh, number one, there are circumstances beyond your control, and I think COVID is, is one of those very good circumstances. And I think the whole thing really is coloured by um, um, the, the COVID considerations. But the one of the other tests is that there's an inability to pay. And um, so it has to be circumstances beyond your, your control, which makes you unable to make unable to pay, excuse me, your minimum yearly repayments. Now, that's, I think, where the difficulty is going to be, because a lot of people will simply say, well, um, unable to pay is all about cash flow. I don't have cash, and um, um, therefore, um, um, I, I won't be able to make the minimum yearly repayment. Now, it's one thing, a business looks at cash flow one way, an individual looks at cash flow another way, let's say, or, or smaller businesses and so forth. So what you've really got to do is you've got to show that um, there's an inability to pay. And one of the things that in taking into account and assessing that inability to pay is whether or not you can actually realise assets or use assets as security in order to go and borrow money. And, and you do raise that valid um, example, and that is that if you've got blue chip shares, despite the fact that the value of the shares themselves might be depressed, um, you'll find that the commissioner says that if you've got the value of shares that you can readily sell, we would expect you to sell them. Now, here's the thing, George. I suspect that a lot of people quite innocently will make these applications, and I think quite innocently, the commissioner, relying on the information provided, will be inclined to um, afford this dispensation. Now, what I'm concerned about, and it's, we're seeing exactly the same thing now with JobKeeper. What I'm concerned about is that next year, the commissioner will say, uh, we've made an assessment of the information you provide us, and we believed that you did have an ability to pay. And therefore, this deferral shouldn't have been extended to you. And as a consequence, we think now that there's a deemed dividend issue. So all I'm saying is that be, be careful for what you wish for, because if you think that just be sorry. Just because you think that you um, do have an entitlement to seek a deferral because of COVID nineteen, and, and there may well be there may well be circumstances in which you can't make a minimum yearly repayment, um, it's quite likely that the commissioner will go um, back, if you like, after the event to assess the statements that you've made, and if they're incorrect, um, I think it would be open to the commissioner to um, issue amended assessments now. 
I don't think there's anything in here in, in the instructions that says that if you get this dispensation, you've got it and it can't be taken away. Each, each taxpayer has to make an assessment about his or her own personal circumstances and the reasons why they can't make a minimum yearly repayment. And on the basis of that assessment, make a judgment call as to whether or not they make the application. But if they get the discretion um, uh, exercised in their favour and they get the deferral and it turns out that they shouldn't have got it, uh, I suspect that it's going to throw everything out of whack in many different ways. And so, um, yeah, I can, I can see some difficulties happening in the future. Yeah, look, and that's an important message because um, just because the Commission has actually said, look, we understand we are in COVID, we'll, we'll guarantee to turn these forms around in five days, it doesn't rescind the right of the Commissioner to go back and review. Uh, I might segue into Section 109Q before I go into 109RB, Arthur. 109Q in terms of genuine hardship and inability to make repayments. Now, the bar is quite high in order to qualify for 109Q. And very, much, very much so. What do people need to consider about applying for 109RQ just so they've got a, a real chance in order to get over the line? Okay, so when it comes to 109Q, so remember 109Q was one of the original hardship provisions, George, in Division 7A. And um, back in the day, before the amendments came through, I think in 2013 for 109RB and so forth, um, um, I had made a number of um, requests to the ATO seeking relief on the grounds of hardship. Now, it's, it's a 109Q, I think, is a very restrictive test for the commissioner and places the commissioner in a very difficult position because all it requires is that the commissioner has to be satisfied that and if, if there was no minimum year repayment or something less, there had to be, again, the circumstances beyond control and... If you had to make the payment, um, sorry, and if you had to receive the, the, the deemed dividend, it would cause you, sorry, the words are, you would suffer undue hardship. Now, here's the thing, right? Um, it's one thing to um, show that there were circumstances beyond control. That's an objective test, and you need to show there were real reasons why a minimum yearly repayment could not have been made. And, and the usual... I think excuses, um, if you like, which are which are valid excuses, are things like, for example, personal circumstances, health reasons. Um, but again, they have to be beyond your control. So, for example, if if, if someone um, 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 is is engaged in, for example, a, a marital dispute or something like that, just be, and that prevents them from focusing on making minimum yearly payments, it's 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 not beyond their control. Sorry, it is beyond their control. Sorry, it's not beyond their control, and consequently. Um, you can't show that these were circumstances beyond your control. There has to be real problems like, for example, um, illness, a sudden onset of illness rather than disputes and things like that. That's the first problem. The second problem is this. To suffer undue hardship is, is like um, real hardship, real financial hardship, and it's very difficult to show. A lot of people um, might say, well, if I have to um, be assessed on a deemed dividend, um, I just won't have the uh, the means to raise money to pay income tax. But if you do a an asset and liability statement, you'll find you've got more assets and liabilities. 
the commissioner will want that. Um, the commissioner will say you would not suffer undue hardship. Undue hardship basically is, for want of a better term, you know, real destitution. And uh, in this day and age and in our society, it's very difficult to show that someone's going to become destitute. But that, as you said earlier, is a really high bar. And so I, I think that um, any applications under 109Q, I think, should be um, assessed and uh, provided to the commissioner judiciously. I think you need to line up all of your ducks in a row to make sure that you get over um, all of the... Um, um, uh, all of the requirements. So, for example, um, you know, the Commission does take into account certain um, factors, and they're set out in 109Q, but bottom line is that you need to show this, uh, you, you would suffer undue hardship, and I think it's really difficult to do. Oh, look, I, I agree, Arthur. Now, if I can just paint a scenario for, for our audience. Let's say you've got a prospective new client that walks through the door. They are lucrative. Um, when, when you start doing your due diligence, you, you actually find a deemed dividend from the previous year, which was not declared. Now, tax practitioners have a number of scenarios that run through their heads when, when this happens. And I want to tailor this question to a really a, a 109RB uh, judgment. Now, tax practitioners could say, look, I'll be an ostrich, I'll ignore it. Or they could say, I'll amend the prior year return to include the deemed dividend as assessable income. Or option three, they can seek the commissioner's discretion under 109B. Option four, fix it up quietly, taking the correcting of action, but not bringing it to the ATO's attention. And option five is, if the deemed dividend was outside the amendment period, do we take action? Do we not take action? And option six is, of course, you can always refuse to take on a client. But having that scenario of a lucrative client walking through the door, you know that there needs to be an adjustment on a previous year. You know mistakes have been made in terms of the operation of Division 7A. Um, what tips do you have for our audience? Yeah, around okay. correcting and what's fatal in terms of mistakes and what isn't. Okay. Uh, George, that's a very common scenario. Um, and, it's, and it presents uh, dilemmas. And the dilemmas are both um, dilemmas for the purposes of the tax law, but the dilemmas are also ethical in nature. Um, I'll start off by saying this. If a client walks through the door and that client is potentially financially lucrative and you detect um, an immediate Division 7A issue, it's very likely that the previous tax agent also did the same thing, which is why the clients walk through your front door. So um, the first thing you'd want to do is, um, I think, do some due diligence. So rather than just simply saying, oh, great, I've got this fantastic client now, do some due diligence, find out who the previous agent was, find out why they left. Now, there, there can be some valid reasons, but the usual reasons are that, you know, this financially lucrative client didn't like to hear what was being put to him or her. So um, I think you've got to do some due diligence. And it's quite likely that even though this financially lucrative client might feign ignorance, the reality is that they're very well aware of Division 7A and they just don't want to pay it and they want to go to somewhere, someone new who might be in a position to assist them or at least make the problem go away. So, so your first, um, um, I think, 
um, task is to just do a bit of a review, see if you can get permission to speak to the previous tax agent. If not, see if you can do some, some I think, um, discreet due diligence. Um, but let's assume that you've gotten past that hurdle and, you, and you've made the decision to take on this client, but you've told the client, look, you've got a problem, you've got to deal with it. I'm not going to do anything um, to make it go away because I'm going to comply with the law because I'm a registered tax agent and if I do anything wrong, uh, the tax practitioner's board might consider me to be no, no longer fit and proper and I lose my ticket. And I'm not going to lose my ticket, my practice and my you know, everything that I've worked for simply because you've come in the door. So you've got to set your boundaries and, and you've got to set the parameters towards those boundaries. So I think in terms of your options, ignoring it is never an option. Okay, if, if, you're, if you're a tax agent and you're prepared to ignore something simply because your client has, your potential client has told you to, or because a previous accountant has ignored it, um, I think is entirely wrong. So we can, I think, safely um, cross out that as a potential option. Um, look, amending the prior year return to include the deemed dividend, I think um, it can be seen as being, um, I think, um, taking corrective action, but uh, I would, I think there's really one orthodox approach to taking all these and ignoring it is not the solution. Um, and um, fixing up things quietly is not a solution. Um, and, and even if you're outside a four year period, let's say, if that's the standard amendment period, um, again, um, you're not really allowing for the fact that the commission might allege evasion, in which case there's an open-ended amendment period. So um, is refusal to take on a client? Absolutely. But that would be one of the very first decisions that you'd make. And I think every tax agent has to be attuned to the fact that sometimes you have to say no, because you, the last thing you need is for a client who represents such a large portion of your, the fees of your client base to basically dictate to you how and when that, that client should pay income tax. So, so here's, I think, what the orthodox approach is, and that is number one, um, identify the issue. Number two, provide options to your client in terms of how to deal with it. And I think the first option is to consider seeking the commissioner's discretion under 109RB. Now, I'll say this, there's no guarantee that you'll get 109RB. For 109RB to apply, there needs to be some threshold criteria that are satisfied. And those threshold criteria are that there has to be um, an honest mistake or an inadvertent omission. Now, uh, I'm sure that um, your listeners, George, would be aware about of the um, uh, uh, way in which taxation ruling 2010-8 deals with those requirements. And, and look, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's not a low hurdle. It, it actually is quite a high hurdle as well. You need to show that the reason why there was, um, if you like, a, um, um, uh, an event that, that caused Division 7A to be treated was because of um, an honest mistake or an inadvertent omission. It, it doesn't mean willful blindness and it doesn't mean deliberate indifference. So they're two very, very different things. So I think what needs to happen is you need to make an assessment. You need to ask the question, why did this happen? And things like, for example, a refusal to make minimum yearly repayments, not going to get you over the line. Because that's the very first question that the ATO goes through whenever um, an application is made under 109RB. Satisfy us that you get over the threshold requirements and we're happy to talk to you about 
corrective action. So again, you need to do your due diligence. You need to understand what happened, why it happened, when it happened, and why wasn't it fixed at some earlier point in time. Then the most important thing is you, you've got to convince your client, not just persuade them, but convince them that an, a written application needs to be made to the ATO and that it must be done under 109RB. And the application itself has to really set out in detailed grounds all of your instructions to make sure that you can satisfy that threshold requirement. I think the next practical thing that I can suggest, George, is that if you can, see if you've got a contact within the ATO that you can talk to someone about them to tell them, hey, um, we're going to make an application under 109RB. Um, this is what's happened can I at least send it to you? At least you've got someone in there with a little bit of a head start. It, it does help the process rather than just sending it in um, cold. Um, and, and again, be prepared to make good arguments about um, honest mistake and inadvertent omission. And the most important advice I can give is if, if as a tax agent, you're not entirely confident about your ability to make an argument or to provide evidence in a, in a rational way, um, that's probative of the issue at hand, then I think you do need to get some outside assistance. And that's also part of the normal, um, if you like, um, requirements under the Tax Agent Services Act, under the Code of Conduct. Um, and that way you're doing the best thing by your client because look, golden rule, it's better to go to the ATO first than have the ATO come to you. Correct. It's a bit like a relationship with your mother-in-law. You're always better off getting on the on the right foot straight away because they'll look after you. If you don't, you're going to have some problems. Now, using using that same analogy yes. of the lucrative client coming through the, through the door, you've got a client that walks through the door with ineffective loan agreements. Mm. Now, what sort of thinking do do we need to run practitioners through in order to correct ineffective loan agreements in order for their client to be to, to have that level of comfort that they are now compliant. Okay, so so remember, go back to basics. 109N talks about the requirement for loan agreements. They have to be written and it effectively has to um, um, provide evidence about the existence of the loan and it has to be signed by both the debtor and the creditor. Um, it's one thing to have an, a, an ineffective loan agreement as opposed to no loan agreement where you have no loan agreement and you want to put one in place that seeks to be retrospective, I think is quite dangerous. And again, I think there would be much, and again, sorry, think about it in terms of the tax agent, you as a tax agent. Um, it's so easy again to be tempted to just simply sign a standard loan agreement that you find produced by any one of the accounting bodies, excuse me, and, and just backdate it. Again, it's really dangerous stuff. It might seem benign, it might seem innocent at the time, but it's really dangerous to um, simply fall into the temptation of backdating a document. So the types of mistakes that are fatal uh, are where, for example, they're not signed by the parties, um, where, for example, they don't actually stipulate the terms of the loan. Um, you know, I've seen some loan agreements that have been done that just missed the point entirely. Um, I've seen some tax agents whip up loans from their, you know, just by themselves for no specific reason. Um, in many cases, they're 
unintelligible, but you know they're also engaging in um, legal profession services which are unregulated, which is an offence as well. So look, there's there's a lot of risks, but the the types of mistake, as I said, as I said, the mistakes that are fatal are things like unsigned. Um, the the loan agreement doesn't really you know satisfy the provisions of section 109 and so consequently they're fatal and you really do have to go to the ATO if you want to play a straight bat as a tax agent. You can however remedy other types of mistakes there might be textual uh, inconsistencies so a deed of uh, amendment um, signed between the parties just to clarify the interpretation um, there might be spelling errors um, but you know the commission did come out with a publication about 15 years ago, I believe, and I can't recall if it was an, an interpretive decision, but basically the commission has said that where, um, where the, um, uh, the difficulty is, as I said, minor, textual and so forth, he'll allow the agreement to be rectified. However, if it's more fundamental um, so that you don't really have an agreement in the first place, the commissioner would then take the view that Division 7A um, wasn't complied with and consequently there'd be deemed dividends. And, and here's the thing with the consultation paper, it, 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 it acknowledges that and that's why under the proposed new rules there isn't a real need for a formal Division 7A agreement, it's just basically um, you know, an exchange of emails as, as evidence of the debt and more importantly evidence of a promise to repay because everybody forgets that a loan is where the debtor promises to repay, not just simply take it away forever. Excellent. Um, if we could just move over across using that same analogy of client walking through the door and you've come across some statute barred loans, Arthur. What mistakes are fatal? What can be remedied? And what advice do you have for our tax your YAC audience in that regard? Yeah, look, that's that's the most that's the most usual problem because there there are arguments um, about um, if, if a debt's been forgiven, and the way that 109F works means that the earliest debt forgiveness is the relevant debt forgiveness for Division 7A purposes. So there's, there are commentators out there that suggest that, oh, well, if that's the case, um, you're outside the four-year amendment period, and so consequently don't worry about it. There is no 109F loan agreement. Uh, uh, sorry, there is no, no problem under 109F. Um, you've got other uh, potential issues such as debt parking where um, debts are assigned to associates. And the test for Division 7A is that um, a reasonable person would conclude that the debt isn't going to be chased up, or words to that effect. Um, and, and then there's the usual one where the um, uh, um, commissioner is satisfied that the debt simply won't be chased up, and that itself constitutes a separate form of forgiveness. Um, so you, you need to be satisfied that you've got a debt. So, for example, UPs fall outside as far as the commission is concerned because the commissioner doesn't think that UPs are debts. Um, I think that... Um, you, again, you've got to go back and do due diligence, find out when the loan was advanced, find out how much, find out if there's been any acknowledgement by the debtor that the debt is owed, find out if the statute of limitation, find out where the loan was advanced, which state, find out if the statute of limitations period applies, find out if the loan's been refreshed. It's, it's, it's not a simple accounting exercise of looking for a debit and a balance sheet. It goes well beyond that and it needs to, as I said, think about Division 7A and statute of limitations to see if there is in fact a problem. And if there is in fact a problem in an earlier period, again, you've got to make a value judgment um, to uh, go to the Commission on the 109RB because I believe that it's not simply a case of saying, oh, well, 
um, you know, out of time more than four years ago, you'll never have a problem. I don't, I don't ascribe to that. I think that if the commissioner sees um, that something has happened um, in the past, the commissioner will take the view that there was evasion and uh, quite likely um, issue amended systems. And remember, the only person at risk here is not the client. The person at risk is you, the tax agent. And that's, I think, again, always think about yourself first. It is selfish, but as a tax agent, you've got everything to lose and think about um, what your position is to make sure that you're covered as much as anybody else. You raise an important topic there, Arthur, because we're seeing the, the, new, the, tax, the tax practitioners board taking a much more aggressive stance mm -hmm. out there in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter where people can put their head in the sand they need to adjust to the changing climate. Yeah. Um, and if we can just touch upon one more topic, um, in that payments and loans through interposed entities, um, yeah. the commissioner now has access to much more information than he did ever before. And as a result, he can look through transactions and raise assessments. So what common mistakes do you often see when uh, payments and loans are made through interposed entities? Well, first of all, um, I think that uh, a lot of tax agents, particularly those that are under the pump and are really busy, sometimes can't, can't have the ability to connect the dots, if you like. Where there is a number, where, where you've got a, a, a fairly large client, and there's a lot of different entities, and monies that are ultimately coming to the benefit of an entity. Um, I think that sometimes you, you can't see the forest for the trees and you don't connect the dots to see whether or not transactions occur where the genesis, if you like, of the amount that was used to affect the transaction came from a private company through different entities and then through to a, a target for the purposes of 109T. Um, I also think that we tend to lose sight of the potential application of Section 100 capital A particularly where trusts are involved and where um, um, an entitlement is provided to one beneficiary, but an amount ultimately goes to another beneficiary being a private company for a, re a loan repayment. Um, so I think that uh, the best way to look at, um, uh, or sorry, to help you with 109T is to look is to ask the question where sorry you've got to look at the starting point so where you've got a private company with a debit loan or, or a or a UPE an unpaid UPE then what you've got to do is you've got to look at transactions that benefit shareholders or associates and you have to make a thorough objective assessment as to whether or not you can link them because if you do you've got a real risk that 109T applies and I think that that's um, an added burden if you like on a tax agent who has to go through that because it's unlikely that you're going to push that um, responsibility onto uh, you know less experienced employees. It's 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 something you've got to go through. You've got to try and persuade your client that it's a value add, and you've got to want to try and charge your client for that. But it's not just simply a matter of scanning through the list entries. You've got to go through and look at economic benefits that are received by a um, uh, an individual and see if you can trace it back um, to a private company with a distributable surplus. Then there's another issue, and that is a lot of accountants get source information where there's already been some element of bookkeeping or allocation to an account of transactions. And a lot of the time, private transactions do get caught up as debits in the P&L. And, and again, you've got to be attuned to that, and you've got to, with using your experience of your client's affairs, 
go thoroughly and look at and do a test of key items, at least glance at them, and see whether or not if something has been debited to the PL as an expense, whether or not there might be a private element. Because even though that's not 109T, it's 109C, it's still um, something that you need to go through, I think, as a matter of practical compliance for your clients' affairs. And then see if you can, if there are transactions between entities, don't look at don't look at it going forward, look at it going backwards. I think that's the best practical advice I can proffer there, um, George. Oh, look, thank you, Arthur. And thank you once again for making the time to uh, speak to our now global uh, Taxiac audience. Thanks for listening to this episode of Taxiac. We've been chatting with Arthur Thanasiu, tax partner at Thompson Gear. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes. And we're happy to, to look at suggestions in terms of future topics and or speakers. You can also get onto the Taxi Act team on email at podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au backslash banter hyphen blog. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and write a review for the show wherever you are. It will help to improve the profile of the show and we'd love to hear from our loyal listeners. We look forward to you joining us again next time.